All right, Psalm 135. So here's how it begins. It begins and ends with the same three words. Praise the Lord. That phrase is repeated um, about four or so times in the first few verses. It's repeated again at the end, although with a slightly different uh, wordage. It uses the phrase, bless the Lord. Um, Similar concepts, maybe some nuance there, but the psalm uh, is really all about praising the Lord. It's not hard to see that as we read it, as we see the repetition in it, although the repetition is not quite as stark as uh, 136, which we looked at last week, where it repeats the same line through the whole thing. This is not quite the same, uh, but it's still talking about praise. And so um, we, we need to walk through what it means to praise the Lord. And I think most of us, when we hear that phrase, we, we have some things that come to mind, like singing, expressing gratitude, um, giving our our uh, attention to him. And all those things are true and right. Um, they are all kind of in that big umbrella or big bucket of what it means to praise the Lord. There's lots of angles we could take to talk about this subject. But the psalm specifically, this one, which is the one we're looking at, um, is um, going in an interesting direction. It actually talks about praising the Lord, not so much in how to do that, although there's a couple things here and there that it tells us to do, but it doesn't give us much instruction on how to praise. It really hones in on why he's worthy of praise. Why is God worthy of our praise? I think the, the hows and the kind of the nuts and bolts of what it means to praise the Lord is seen in lots of other psalms and throughout the Bible. We see singing, we're called to do that. We're, we're called to play instruments for his glory. We're called to pray to him. We, we are called um, to gather in worship. We're, we're called uh, to lots of things. And all of those things are ways that we praise the Lord, right? Um, including all the way down to giving of our, of our finances to help meet the needs of others and all of that, right? Everything there can be in that category. But this psalm specifically takes us to why we do all those things. What is the reason for it? And, and that's, it's going to do that by showing us something primarily about who God is. It's going to take us to who he is And then it's going to take us to what he has done. And then we're going to look at this by contrast to see what false gods um, are like and and how they can't measure up. So it's an interesting psalm. It's broken into basically two main categories, who God is and what God has done. And then we're seeing the idolatry piece towards the end. So uh, we'll walk through this together. Um, but, But I think... There's, a, there's something we need to talk about before we get into this, and th- it's probably an even more foundational question, which is why do we even need to talk about this? Why should we talk about praising the Lord? What does that mean uh, for our hearts? And I think the reason that this and many other Psalms are in the Bible to talk about this and to call us to praising the Lord is because fundamentally we are hardwired not to do that. Our sin creates this barrier where we do not want to praise the Lord. We've, we've moved away from that. We are wired towards self-focus, to receiving the praise of others or to offering praise on ourselves. We, we find 
um, security in all kinds of places that are not Jesus. We want to be seen as impressive people or competent people or receive compliments or for people to notice us. We want to find our significance in what we can control. Right? And so at the very nature of this, at the very heart of this, the, the root bed of this is pride and saying that I actually deserve the praise. And that's, that's just a problem that we have to acknowledge exists in each of us, and it does. And then we need to pivot away from that into trust in the Lord. We need to align our lives to him. We need to actually put our focus on him. That's what it really means to praise the Lord, is to direct our focus and attention on the Lord Jesus, which is one of the reasons why we gather in, in worship this is, a, this is kind of a reorienting moment as, as we take time in our week to come into this building, to sing, to hear the word, to, to be together. All of this is meant to direct ourselves away from ourselves onto the Lord Jesus. Um, as, I, as I read up on these things, I came across uh, C.S. Lewis's explanation of praise. And this isn't a direct quote, but this is basically what he gets at is, that praise is really the inner spiritual health coming out audibly, right? That, that's what praise is. It's, it's seeing the, the health that Jesus provides us in our souls coming outward in audible uh, ways. So while there's lots of angles we can take to talk about that, um, we're really going to hone in on what the Lord, uh, who the Lord is and what the Lord has done in order to pivot our hearts there. We've got to get our eyes off ourselves. in other words, and that's what this psalm helps us do. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and places it where it belongs on, onto Jesus. So let's look at this. Um, we'll look at the beginning of Psalm 135. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Verse 3, here's where we start to get to the heart of this. Praise the Lord for, or you can say because, right? that's sometimes more helpful, that word for me, to understand what's being said here. Praise the Lord because the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name for it is pleasant. So there is the first foundational reason why we are called to praise the Lord. We are to call, praise the Lord because he is good. Now, notice this because it's important. It doesn't say praise the Lord because he does good. That, that's true. He does do good. It says praise the Lord because he is good. That's who he is. Every impulse of God's heart is towards Goodness, Just as the Bible tells us that God is love, it doesn't mean that love is God. It means that every impulse of God's heart is directed towards love and every impulse of God's heart is directed towards goodness because he is good. That is who he is. He is a good God and we'll exp I'll get into why that matters in a little bit, but we see this is the first uh, kind of descriptor of God's nature and character in this psalm that pivots our hearts away from ourselves 
towards his praise. Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name for it is pleasant. His name is pleasant. That word can also be translated as beautiful. That is who he is. He is good. He is pleasant. He is, he is beautiful. He is worthy of our attention and our affection. And his goodness is, is placed on display here in verse 4. Right? So he's going to tell us that God is good, and then he's going to show us why he's good or how that shows up in, in his life and in his dealings with us. Look at verse 4. It says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own, as his own possession. So we see here that the goodness of God, who he is, the very nature of who God is as good is displayed in something very specific. It's not the only way his goodness is displayed, but in this example that we're given, his goodness is displayed, namely in choosing a people for himself. He chose Israel. Jacob and Israel are interchangeable. Same, same person that that man represents, this nation, right, is coming out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel at one point in his life. So we're talking about God's dealing with his people and the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. He has chosen Israel as his possession. But we, we need to recognize that that's the Old Testament context, right? The Old Testament understanding, and that's right and good. But again, like everything in the Old Testament, it is a prototype of something deeper, which is, as the New Testament lays out, that this is how God is dealing with each of us, regardless of our ethnicity or alignment to a particular people group. The Bible tells us that we, as his church, are chosen in Christ. I'll take you to two places where it talks about that, Ephesians chapter 1 and then 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But Ephesians 1 is probably the most clear and you can just see kind of the parallel language here in, in this letter that Paul writes to this Gentile church in Ephesus. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, how has he done that? Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And don't miss this. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. The, the impulse of our hearts, as we know that we are loved by God, loved so much by God, in fact, that he reached down to save us and choose us and pull us out of our sin and our rebellion to bring us to himself. He did that before the foundations of the world. He set his heart on you and me to bring us to himself. Don't be scared off by these truths. These truths are vital for your heart because if everything in you revolves around your work to get yourself saved, that's a sinking ship. 
But if everything in your heart is going towards nothing I've done can disqualify me from this because God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, meaning before you've done anything to prove your worthiness, he chose you in him. He called you and adopted you to himself through Jesus. He has purposed this in his will. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has done that. And that's why Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. This should lead us to an impulse of praise for who God is because his goodness, his, and I think his love and goodness are, are wrapped together in this, right? His love and his goodness flow out of him towards us unworthy sinners. And to, to go even further to show that we actually do nothing to deserve this, it is purely by God's undeserved kindness towards us in grace Paul writes this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he really drills down on that issue specifically. He, he says, he calls them, he's talking about uh, wisdom and, and the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of Christ in the cross. But, but then he says this in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For consider your calling, brothers, your calling into Christ. Consider this. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. So there we're seeing uh, intelligence, strength, and influence. Not, Not many of us have any of those. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, instead of bragging about your ability to get yourself saved, which you have none, you should brag and boast. In other words, praise God for your salvation. If you're going to boast at all, boast in Jesus because he's the one who brought you to himself. But don't miss this. He did this because of his goodness. That's the point of Psalm 135. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 1. That it's not, it's not to make us boast, but it's to make us praise. That God would choose us and pull us out. And listen, that is so vital. It is, it is, the, um, it, it is the thing that will keep you going forward towards Jesus when life just kicks you in the teeth. That God loves you and is good to you and has called you. He has chosen to love you. It's absolutely remarkable that he has done this considering we're all unworthy sinners apart from him. And yet he loves us. 
and he has chosen us. He chose Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. We see that reality carry through into Christ, who is the ultimate one chosen by God to be the redeemer of the world. And then through him, everyone in the world who gets in on this through faith gets to be a part of this. That's a beautiful thing. We see God's goodness as a reason to praise. We also see something else. Look at verse 5 through 7. We'll, we'll just read verse 5 to start and then we'll talk about this for a minute. It says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. So we're seeing his goodness in the first couple verses or so. And here we're seeing something a little different. We are seeing that the Lord is great. Notice it doesn't say the Lord does great things, although he does. That is true. That is stated in the scriptures plenty of times. But it is that the Lord is great. This is who he is. This is a part of his character. This is his nature. We praise him for his goodness because goodness is who he is. We also praise him for his greatness because greatness is who he is. Now, what's the difference there between good and great? See, the way we use those words in English tends to be, well, good is good and great is a little better than good. But they're basically the same thing, right? There's, there's a book I had to read when I was in college called From Good to Great. It's this business book. It's garbage. Throw it away if you ever find it. But the book is about taking a, a, a company from, ah, eh, you're a pretty good company to you're a great company. Well, that whole notion is basically taking goodness and greatness and saying they're essentially the same, but just different levels. But that's not what th this is talking about in context. We can see we're not just saying that God is good and now we're just saying it a different way to say he's, he's better than good. Greatness, well, let's start with this. Goodness has to do with God's moral character. Okay, greatness has to do with his power and authority. We see that in the text. Our Lord is above all gods. He sits above all other gods. Now, there aren't any other gods in reality, but as we're going to see, there are gods that are fashioned by our own hands. And the Lord is above them in authority and power. And it goes even further to say this. Look at verse 6. This is the single, single best definition of God's sovereignty you will find in the Bible. 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That is the definition of sovereignty. That is the definition of greatness, of authority, of power. If you could do literally whatever you want, well, first of all, you don't have the moral goodness to stand under that weight. You'd end up in prison, which proves that you're not actually sovereign, by the way. Right? Like, that's the point. Is like, if we run up against something more powerful than us, we end up in trouble. God has no such thing. There is no one above him. He literally does all that he pleases. But here's the issue. God's goodness never allows him to do that which is evil. He's purely good. And so all that he pleases is good and is right, unlike us. 
there are certainly aspects of will and decision-making and freedom that we possess that is true, and yet God is the truly free, sovereign one. Even if we have little bits of that in life, we will never find full freedom. Even the most powerful dictators who in their countries would have what seems to be absolute sovereignty are still under the sustaining power of Jesus Christ to keep them alive. No one, aside from God, has true sovereignty completely. But God does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And then the psalm gives us a specific example of how that's displayed. And I actually think it's a really good example. Look at verse 7. It says, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his, his storehouses. What's the specific example of God's greatness here? Now it's not, we could go to a million different ways that God shows his greatness, but the example here in this passage is his power or control over something that we literally cannot control at all, the weather. We have not yet been able to figure out how to make it rain. We can pull water out of the ground and simulate rain for the fields. You see that happening out, outside of town here a lot now that it's not raining at all this summer. We can certainly do things to keep crops growing, but we can't actually make clouds in the sky or produce lightning in those clouds or to have rainfall. We don't have access to the storehouses of the wind. No matter how technologically advanced we get, we will never be able to control these things. But God does. Which is why in the you know, in, in days gone by, um, people would actually pray for rain because you're actually appealing to the one who can do it, do something about it. I have a good friend who's in England uh, and he pastors a rural church in, on the um, western side of England and he's got lots of farmers in his church and farmer Tom, he talks about this guy who uh, spent you know, a whole season sowing the seed in his field and um, there was no rain. And so he called my friend John, Pastor John, and he said, hey, could you pray for rain? Because I've done what I can do. Now it's up to God to actually make this thing happen. That's how Christians respond to the world around us. We recognize we are out of control. We have no control over certain things. And, and we have to depend on the Lord Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That is a display of God's greatness and and we praise him because he is great. We praise him because he is good. These are the things that God is that makes us want to praise him or should lead us there. From here, the psalm takes us to some of the acts that God performed for Israel in the Old Testament. We saw a bit of this last week as well. We're going to see it again today, but um, we won't belabor it too much. But it says, He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. And in your midst, O Egypt, who, uh, he sent 
signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down mighty nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. All right, so here we're seeing the acts of God in two particular ways. One is, which we, talk, we spent time on this last week, so I'll try not to repeat myself too much. But this is, this is important. The, the, the Exodus story and the story of the Canaanites getting, being defeated and the Israelites taking over their land in the Old Testament, you, see, you read those in Exodus, you read those in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First uh, Samuel. Those books of the Bible tell us these stories. And they tell us the stories as a, as a way of pointing our hearts to a greater salvation and a greater rest than what deliverance from Egypt was and what the giving the land and rest to the people of Israel means that in Jesus, we are fully redeemed, completely reconciled to God, and ultimately then given the rest of, of uh, heaven with him. But these are things that display God's work of salvation for his people. We praise him because he has saved us. We praise him because he has pulled us out of the depths of our rebellion into reconciliation with him. But we need to realize this, that everything we've just seen of his goodness and his greatness is actually why salvation is accomplished for us. Salvation and his works in that way are actually rooted in his nature and character as a good and great God. Let me show you how. Um, if, If God were good and not great, he would be willing to save, but unable to save. And if God were great, but not good, he would be able to save, but unwilling to save. And so in both cases, we're, we're doomed. But what we have in God is both willingness and ability. Goodness, an impulse of love for us to save us and choose us. And ability in his greatness, to actually accomplish that salvation. We see the willingness of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held on, held on to or clung to, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. We see in, the, in Jesus this willingness to leave heaven, leave his throne in heaven, to come to the dust of earth and live as a peasant, a poor man, a a homeless person who just had to depend on people's generosity. And, And there he lived and did miracles and performed all these mighty acts to ultimately accomplish our salvation through his death on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sin and the greatest display of God's sovereign power, the resurrection of Jesus. That he was raised from death to life. That he defeated sin once and for all. We see in the person of Jesus the full willingness and the full power of God for our salvation. It's, he's, he is in human form. It's for us to see 
And so God acts, does the things he does out of, flowing out of who he is. So those are the reasons we are to praise, right? That God is worthy of our praise, that he is worthy of of our adoration and our attention and our affection. Not because we get points for that, but because he does all of this for us and we have nothing else to respond with. Now the psalm goes in about four more verses to show us a, a contrast. It, it is going to juxtapose um, God as a sovereign and good God with what, what we would call idols or false gods. And look at verse 15 through 18. Here's what it says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. So we're, we're talking about idolatry here, and, but let's, let's define some things here because that word idol uh, is kind of archaic. It probably brings to mind as you have in your mind, you know, an envisioning of these things, even the passage itself lends to this, of ancient cultures, of created statues. But an idol is much deeper than just a mere image. It's an image that stands in the place of a devotion to something else. Uh, if, you, if you study the idols of the Old Testament times, each of these idols, particularly Baal and some of the others, they had representation of something else, something that only God could do. But they, instead of trusting the Lord for that, they would trust in this pretend God of their own making. And so while we don't, you know, do that in the same way, we're not crafting statues and saying, oh, look, here's our God. At least not in our cultural context. It is happening in other parts of the world, of course. But here we don't see that. So sometimes we can read through this and kind of gloss over and go, well, that doesn't affect me. But really what's at the heart of this is foolishness of our hearts to expect a gift to be a giver. That's really what we're looking at. That the good things in this life are meant to draw our attention and praise to God for his goodness and greatness. But instead we, we take all of that and we translate it into something else and say, well, this is actually what I'm going to honor but gifts are to be received as a treasure from our greatest treasure. Idolatry will always end up disappointing us. God never does, right? So, so let's, let's see that, right? The work of human hands is the key in this definition of idolatry. The things that we make that say, aha, look at us. We pulled this off. That's what idolatry is fundamentally. What's the danger in that? Well, the danger in expecting a gift to be a giver is defined in the passage, verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
What does that mean? Well, uh, Dane Ortland um, explains it this way. I think this is a helpful definition. He says, idolatry dehumanizes us. Imperceptibly, perhaps, over time, those who trust in anything other than God will begin to take on the characteristics of that less-than-God thing into which their deepest hopes are being funneled. So if we trust most deeply in money or in reputation or in our own morality or in ease and comfort or in a political party or anything else other than God, we begin over time to take on the worst characteristics of such things. We were made to image God in all of his fullness, but instead we begin to image forth created things in all of their emptiness. So what is the, um, what's the antidote for this? What's the, what's the correction for this? Well, it's verse 19 through 21. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The danger in focusing on these things crafted by our hands is that we will inevitably become as empty as those things really are. And instead, we are called to reorient our hearts to praise God for his goodness, for his grace, uh, uh, greatness, displayed in his salvation, displayed in his provision, displayed in his compassion, shown up in all these ways. Because as we do, we gradually begin to image him. We will become like him. We will begin to experience the nature of Jesus Christ, which we see in part in the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is a list in the Bible that gives us the metrics and markers of the character of Christ that flow out of us as we grow in him. So, so here's where we got to land, I think, today. Uh, we are living undoubtedly in very crazy times. We feel it. You know it. You feel it. To some degree, we're all kind of crazy. And, and, you know, we're living in interesting days, for sure. I'm not, I'm not dis- diminishing that. But the call to praise the Lord is actually the, the very antidote we need to the poison that's dripping in our veins as we freak out about everything around us. Freaking out about the world and all the problems and all the cultural issues and all the political mess and blah, 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 all that, right? All of that ultimately displays a lack of inner confidence in God's goodness and in his greatness. It forgets that God is love and goodness. It forgets that God is sovereign and in control. And that's why this passage is in the Bible, to remind us that that is who God is. He is good and he is great. He is above all gods. And if he's above all gods, so-called, he's certainly above all people whom he has made. So we don't need to freak out. And so one thing that I I think this helps us do is if C.S. Lewis is right, and I think he is in saying that praise is, is the 
inner health of a believer coming out audibly, that's a metric of, of spiritual health. If praise is on our lips, if praise is coming out of our hearts, right? Because Jesus says it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what we speak about, what we spend our time talking about is an indication of what's going on in here, in our hearts, at the inner core of our being. And if it's always negativity, if it's always obsessing over what's wrong, if it's always freaking out about one thing or the, or the next, that is a dashboard warning light for your life to say, maybe your, your heart's not praising the Lord and seeing him for his goodness and greatness. And maybe that's an opportunity that the Lord is actually giving you to change direction and make steps that need to be made. We, I think we really do need this. This is, this is grounding. This is healthy for us to see that we're not in control. God is. But that's not a scary thing because God is good and right and perfect in all that he does. And all that he allows has a purpose. You know all of these things I'm saying. But we need to hear it again. We need to see it again. We need to sit under it again. And so when we spend all of our time obsessing over what's wrong in the world, instead of talking about what God has done and what he continues to do, this is why last week we spent so much time talking about gratitude, expressing thanks to God, right? These things go hand in hand. It's why they're actually two psalms right next to each other. I think that's not an accident. When we see God for who he really is, his goodness and his greatness, we don't have to be afraid. We actually can be realigned to what we ought to be. We don't need to fret over molehills of cultural problems when we have a mountain range of blessings in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. But yet we choose to ignore that, ignore that the rocky mountain range is in front of our face in Christ and instead focus on this little problem here that is going to be wiped away one day. We don't have to live that way. The Bible tells us how we can move forward. We praise the Lord. We direct our attention and our hearts to him. And we allow him to work in us and allow us to image who he is. That's the, that's the antidote here. And it's, it's amazing to me as we've been working through these um, psalms, just how similar they are to each other. It's like we just picked these out of a cup. We literally did. And yet God wants to tell us something here, you guys. He's wanting to tell us something. This wasn't an accident. These things last week, this week, the week before, all of these things are coming together because we need to hear it, obviously. And so we'll see what comes next week. Um, But this week, we need to reorient our hearts to, to the Lord's goodness and to the Lord's greatness and say, because he is that, I don't have to live like I'm on sinking sand. I can stand on a rock that is Christ and I can look up at all the blessings that he's given to me in him. Let's do that. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you have loved us in Christ to the, to the full, to the fullness, that, that we, we have nothing that lacks in Jesus. You have given us every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yes, we may lack some physical blessings, but those things don't matter in comparison to the, to the true greatness and goodness that you are for us. I pray you would help us to receive that, believe that, and trust in that, and that you would actually get us, myself included, out of the fear, out of the, out of the constant anxieties, out of the constant worries, and to see you for who you are. We pray you would, you would do that work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.